All right, I, I am so excited to share with you this morning. Uh, two weeks in a row you get to spend with me. I think this is the first time I've ever got to uh, share the message two weeks in a row. And I am just so blessed to do that. Um, I feel like I kind of used all my chips last week, though, when I started the service by saying it was a busy day and it was a busy morning because we had a flood in the church this week. And we had teams, uh, teams of people in here last night cleaning up downstairs and uh, some volunteers. And um, so I, I can't say that again, that like, man, I just need to stop and take a breath. But I I kind of am, I guess, so, so just bear with me on that. Uh, but we are, we're gearing up for Summer Challenge. It, it starts tomorrow, and as of right now, I think we have 177 kids signed up. 177 kids signed up. 85 volunteers. There's going to be over 250 people in this very room, right where you're sitting, tomorrow morning and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday, and what an opportunity that is for us to share the gospel with them. And just to reiterate something that we touched in the announcements that I want to hit one more time here, uh, just so you understand, is we love, love spending time with your children. We love being able to care for them and invest in them and connect with them and ultimately share the love of God and the love of Jesus Christ through those relationships. And the reason we have pre-check-in is because every single minute that we have with your kids counts. And I would so much rather your kids be in here connecting with us than waiting in a long line out in the lobby, all right? So if you haven't done so already, we encourage you to pre-check in your kids after the gathering. They can get their T-shirt, make sure all the paperwork's in order. This way, when they, this way, when they walk in tomorrow, they can just come in, get their name tag, and just start having fun and engaging. All right, does that sound good? All right, if you haven't signed up yet, there's still some room available. A lot of the uh, challenges have closed out because of the limitations, but we can still have you help out uh, or still have you sign up your kids. And there's also room to volunteer. If you want to come and be a part of this awesome week, you can still do that, and we would encourage you to do that. Uh, but maybe you can't because of work. Maybe there's a time commitment, something else that's going on that's preventing you from being here. Don't fret. You can still connect and engage with us this week. And the way you can do that is as I said already, we're going to have 250 people in this room that are hearing the gospel presented to them Monday through Friday, and they need nothing more than for you to just be lifting them up in prayer every single day. All right, so I encourage you, I challenge you, I, I plead of you to just be thinking of the folks that are in this room this week, uh, that it's not about us, but that we, we allow ourselves to step out of the way and let God do what only he can do, all right, and, and that we are just so excited for that. All right, so now that I got the little summer challenge plug out of the way, I have a question for you. We are going to start with this. Show of hands. Have you ever, have you ever had a desire to make a difference? Half of you aren't listening. <laughs> All right. Have you ever had a desire to make a difference, to, to, leave, uh, to live a life, excuse me, of significance, to leave a legacy behind? I feel as though this is something that all of us have in common. No one wakes up in the morning and says, gee, you know what? I really hope that I'm useless today. I don't, I don't think anyone wakes up like that, right? I, I know I didn't. No one wakes up and says, I really hope I go throughout the day and I find every way possible to avoid making an impact in the world around me. That's not what we wake up thinking. We all have a desire to be used. We all have a desire to be significant. We all have a desire to leave our mark. And in order to do this, we need to first understand who it is we are. We need to truly understand who it is we were created to be and for what purpose, in fact, we were actually created. Shakespeare in Hamlet says this, This above all, to thine own self, be true. Ralph Ellison said in The Invisible Man, When I discover who I am, then I will be free. This idea of self-discovery is extremely popular amongst literature and even in the entertainment world uh, right now. Uh, there's a popular show on TV right now called This Is Us. Any fans? Really? That's it? That show's awesome. All right. The, the whole idea of this show is, is watching this family, and, and there's these flashbacks and the way it goes back and forth, and it's helping you understand who, who these individuals are as they're trying to understand who they are themselves. It's, it's amazing to watch. Our culture today, our society today, it more than ever has become obsessed with this idea of discovering our personal identity. We have this deep-rooted desire, a deep-rooted desire for self-awareness. If you walk through a brick-and-mortar bookstore, there's not a lot of them nowadays, you see a huge, huge self-help section. 
And the majority of those books are focused on that, personal, uh, personal identity, who you are, self-discovery, self-awareness. If you don't want to go to a brick-and-mortar store because they're hard to find, just check out Amazon's bestseller list. That's what you're going to find there. Truly knowing who we are has become essentially our ultimate goal as a culture. And to be honest, it's, it's really not a bad thing. It's a wonderful thing. The issue, however, is this. Culturally, culturally speaking, we as a whole, we, we're, we keep seeking to find our identity in all the wrong places. We keep trying to find it in our jobs, in our status, in who we are. There are all these outside influences that are trying to push us to embrace different truths about identity and who we really are as individuals. And the result of this has created utter chaos. To be honest with you, it's created utter chaos. And personally, personally, I would go so far as to even suggest that this confusion around identity has even invaded the church. And as a result of this confusion, it is this, this confusion, it is what keeps us from operating at the level of effectiveness, the level of influence, and the level of authority that is ours, and is ours only through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But here's the thing. We don't have to sacrifice our level of effectiveness. We don't have to sacrifice our level of influence. We don't have to be confused. We can go straight to the author and perfecter of our faith who has revealed to us through his word who it is we were created as, who we were created to be, and more than that, our purpose and part of his plan. It was just like any other morning. The sun started to shine over the mountains in the east and the, 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 the rays of sun were just pointing uh, right on their faces as they were sound asleep on the beach and they began to wake up one by one. The sound of the shores, you can almost hear the, the, the waves crashing onto the beach. They gathered around the fire and they began they began to make breakfast together. As they're sitting there, one by one, again, they're all joining there, one by one, they see the ships coming in from a hard night's work out, at the sea, out on the sea. They start to see the fishermen pulling up to the dock and pulling the nets out of their boats. Some of them, some of them filled to the brim, the catch of their lives, dragging them along the dock all the way into the shore so they can cash in. Some of the sailors, some of the fishermen, they came out of their boats discouraged, beaten, nothing in their nets. Some of the men sitting around the fire, they, used to sh they were sharing stories with one another about their days when they were fishermen before they gave that all up. As the sun grew stronger that day, the crowds began to increase. More and more people started to show up on the shore. The docks were full. The beach was no longer empty, but rather crowded. It was no longer an intimate moment. This group of individuals, they were forced to, to retreat from the beach and head up onto the hillside where they could be, uh, maybe not alone, but they could take a moment to catch their breath, if you will. There he is, someone shouted. There he is. And the crowd started to flock to them running to hear him speak. Peter, James, Andrew, and John, they looked out from the top of the hill and they were looking down and they started trying to count the people, but there was far too many. Far too many for them to count. They turned around and asked, should we go up to the mountain even further so we can be alone? And he said, no, this is fine. Silence quickly fell over the crowd as he began to speak. He was speaking just to a few of his closest, dearest friends. But the shape of the hillside in, in conjunction with the, the, the water and the beach, it created sort of an amphitheater. So it was amazing as he was sitting there having this conversation with just a few, but yet everyone could hear everything he said clearly and vividly. Men, women, children, all the like, sitting in silence as they listened and hung on every single word that he said. I imagine 
He wasn't oblivious to the fact that there was an additional audience. He was speaking to only a few, but the crowd was there and he knew it. He said, you are blessed when you are at the end of your rope. With less of you, there is more of God in his rule. He continued, he said, you're blessed when you feel you've lost what is most dear to you. Imagine the look of confusion on their faces as he says these things. Only then can you be embraced by the one most dear to you. You are blessed when you are content with just who you are. No more, no less. That's the moment you find yourselves proud owners of everything that can't be bought. You're blessed when you've worked up a good appetite for God. His food and drink is the best meal you'll ever eat. You're blessed when you care. At the moment of being careful, you find yourselves cared for. You're blessed when you get in your inside world, your mind and your heart all put right. Then, only then, can you see God in the outside world. You're blessed when you can show people how to cooperate instead of compete or instead of fighting. That's when you discover who you really are. That's when you discover who you really are in your place in God's family. You're blessed when your commitment to God provokes persecution. The persecution drives you even deeper and deeper into God's kingdom. Not only that, count yourselves blessed every time people put you down or throw you out or speak lies about you to discredit me. What it means is that this truth is too close for comfort and that they, they are uncomfortable. You can be glad when that happens. Give cheer. For they, for though they don't like it, I do. In the heaven, all of heaven, it applauds and know that you are in good company. My prophets, my witnesses have always gotten into this kind of trouble. Man, I wish I could have been part of the crowd that day. Sitting on a rock within earshot of Jesus Christ sharing this teaching with the 12 of his closest friends. At first, I imagined they were listening and said, surely, what he, surely he misspoke. Maybe I misunderstood, but no, they heard every single word and they heard it correctly. They heard every word correctly. What is he talking about? This can't be. But Jesus continued teaching. He went on and on, and they continued listening. Hear me on this. They continued listening despite, despite how contradictory everything he said was in comparison to what they believed and what they desired. Everyone there that day, the disciples and the crowds, they continued to listen to the words of Jesus Christ despite how unorthodox it was, despite how different it was from what they already believed, despite from what their own wants and needs and desires really were. They listened anyway. Do you continue to listen to Jesus when his words are different from what you want to hear? I know I struggle with this. I struggle with it all the time. It's hard to seek him out when, when he, what he's going to say is going to hurt. And it's going to go against your own desires and your own wants. But it's important that we learn from what we see the disciples do and what we learn from what the crowds around him do in that moment. They continue to listen anyway. We have such a difficult time not only listening but accepting, accepting the words of Jesus because we give too much weight, we give too much equity, we give too much thought to the words of all those around us. We, we seem to treasure the thoughts, and, uh, the, the thoughts and words of our friends and our classmates, maybe our teachers, our confidants, our coworkers, 
even our political leaders. We tend to accept the cultural norms and standards around us more than we do the words of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is, in this moment, he's so clearly saying, this is who you are. This is us. This is who you were created to be. You are to be someone who relies solely on God. Solely on him. You are to, be, you are to receive comfort. You are to be someone who receives comfort by giving comfort. You are to be humble. You are called to be someone who seeks justice. True justice. You are to be someone who extends mercy and shows compassion. To be someone whose heart is pure, someone of a humble, humble mindset. It's not about you, it's about God. Someone who works towards peace at all costs. He says, blessed are the peacemakers, not the peacekeepers. And sometimes that's difficult. This is who you are. This is who you were created to be. You are my creation, made in my image. This is what I'm after. So if this is who we were created to be, what then are we called to do with it? What then are we called to do? What I love about this passage of Scripture, what I love about this Sermon on the Mount in particular, is that though Jesus was speaking directly to his disciples, there was 12 people, they were sitting around together on the side of a hill, he was speaking directly to them, he really was speaking to a large crowd at the same time. Imagine I'm sitting here and there's actually people in the front row. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> Imagine I'm here and I, and I sit on the edge of the stage and I'm just having a conversation with the folks sitting three rows back. But yet, no microphone, no lights, none of that. But all of you, you can hear so clearly what it is I'm saying. Jesus isn't oblivious to that. He's having a conversation with 12 of his closest friends. And he knows that there are many that are listening in. And many of those who are listening their thoughts are going to be provoked by what he's saying. Many of them are not yet disciples. But he knows when they witness what he's about to do over the coming years in his ministry, they one day will be. He knows they're listening. So this message is sort of a dual purpose, if you will. It's intended not only to help the disciples grow, not only for the closest friends, but it's also intended to reach those beyond. It's sort of a missional mindset, if you will. They could have easily, like I said, continued up to the top of the mountain, but they didn't. And there's other instances in the gospel where they did. They retreated all the way up to the top of the hillside so that they could be alone, that they could find retreat, that they could have a quiet place to spend time together. But not today. Not this message. This message was different. He wanted everyone to hear what he was saying. He wanted them to hear clearly, this is who you are, this is who you were created to be, and I'm going to tell you in just a moment why. That's what he's doing. But before we get any further, we need to talk about a little bit of a paradox, if you will, when it comes to the disciples. Something that's important that we understand as we look at them as we try to understand some of Jesus' teaching. On one hand, a disciple is no different than anybody else. Absolutely no different. They have very fairly common occupations, fishermen, tax collectors, builders, the like, normal things. They're broken. They're full of sin, just like everyone else. There's nothing special about them. It wasn't that they they've all of a sudden got their act together and pulled up their bootstraps and tried harder. It wasn't that. There was nothing desirable about them that made them stand out to Jesus more than anyone else. It was simply God's grace. It was simply God's grace. And it's that grace that grabbed hold of them. It's that grace that they, they didn't push away. It's that very same grace that's available to both you and I. That grace is available to the world. Last week we talked about John in chapter 3. He said, for God so loved the world. He loved everyone. There is a commonality that the disciples shares with everyone else, and that is brokenness, that they are in need of a Savior. 
And yet at the same time, a disciple is completely different, radically different from the rest of the world. How can that be? How can a disciple be no different, but yet radically different at the same time? How is that possible? How can that happen? The reason for it is this. God is radically different than the world. God is radically different than the world. Because God is so different than the world. He is creator, everything else. Everything else is creation. Every man, woman, child, and thing on this world is creation. Only he is creator. He is holy. Every man, woman, and thing on this world is broken. Everything is broken. So what makes a disciple is not simply the idea of knowing about God. It's the fact that we're actually seeking him and really knowing him. What, th- what takes place here, what takes place here is when you're filled with the Spirit. This, this is where you start to see this come to light. In Titus, in chapter 3, it says this. When God, our Savior, revealed his kindness in love. This TV looks a lot bigger next to Brandon, doesn't it? I just noticed that. Like, normally, like when I watch the videos, I'm like, I, I, was, I was expecting to look. All right, you can stop laughing, all right? I know I'm big. I know I'm a big guy. All right? So when God our Savior... When God our Savior revealed his kindness and his love, he saved us. Not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and a new life through the Holy Spirit. I think there's another slide. He generously poured out the Spirit upon us. He poured out, that word is so important, poured out the Spirit upon us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Because of his grace, he made us right in his sight and gave us confidence that we will inherit eternal life. You see, as a disciple, we are no different than anyone else, but yet we are radically different because of everyone else, because of the Spirit. God's Spirit in a true disciple is alive and well, which means God is alive and well within you. The uniqueness of God is what makes us his disciples unique. The holiness, is, the holiness of God is what makes us unique. Think, last week, if you were here, you'd hear me talk a little bit about dual baptism, being baptized of water and of spirit. This is what we're talking about when we talk about being baptized of the spirit. It is poured out over us, and we are made new by the washing and the regeneration and the renewing of our mind through the spirit of Jesus Christ. It is important that we understand this idea, okay? And it's important that we understand this because Jesus is about to draw a hard line in the sand, a very, very, very hard line in the sand. He says, this is what it looks like to be a disciple, and this is what it looks like to not be a disciple. This is what it looks like when you do the things that you've been called to do, when you live up to the expectations that I've set forth before you at the beginning of time, when you start to live as who you are, this is what it looks like. When you don't do those things, this is what it looks like. So if you, will, if you will, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. I believe it's on page, whatever on the screen, 802. 802. We're going to be looking, picking up at verse 13 here. I'll give you a moment for all you people that don't want to pick up a Bible. Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 through 16, page 802. It says this, you are the salt of the earth. A passage that many of us are familiar with. You are the salt of the earth, but what good is salt if it has lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? No. It will be thrown out and it will be trampled underfoot as worthless. He continues on and he says this, you are the light of the world, like a city, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. What a cool little passage of Scripture. Jesus starts out with two very, very strong statements. What does he say? He says, you are the salt of the earth. 
He then follows it up with saying, you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. He didn't say you should be. He didn't say you might be. He didn't say if you do these things, you are. He's saying you are. You are the salt. You are the light of the world. And in making a statement like this, and making it so directly to the disciples, he's, again, remember, he's speaking to the disciples despite the fact that there's a large crowd around. He's speaking right to these 12 people, knowing that everyone's listening. And making such a statement, what he's also doing is making a statement to everyone else listening. If the disciples are in fact the salt of the earth, what does that mean? That means the earth is decaying. That means that the earth is rotting away. Over the last couple of years, I've begun to enjoy uh, smoking meat with my friends. Uh, Tom, yesterday, who actually did an awesome job for the men's barbecue, give it up for Tom if you were there. Food was, whoo! Man, it was, it was good. It was, it was some good ribs. They were, they were really good. Um, but I, I've enjoyed smoking meat, and uh, some of my friends and I, we all do this together. We share recipes and, and dry rubs and different things and tips and tricks. Um, but one of the things that I began to do this past year, which I'm really enjoying, is I'm curing meat. All right, so I started making uh, homemade bacon. <laughs> like, I should eat more bacon. Making bacon, <laughs> uh, bacon uh, corned beef, pastrami, those sorts of things. And one of the things that I learned that was extremely important as I began doing this, I started probably back in around February or so uh, with this, was that as soon as you get home from the market with that cut of meat, you need to start. The longer that you wait, the worse off the meat's going to be. The, the better the chance of it spoiling and going bad. You have to start right away. All right? As soon as that meat is cut from its source, as soon as it's cut from the animal, it to, begins to decay. Like it or not, that's what happens. And if you don't prepare it in time, you're going to lose it. It's going to spoil. It's going to go rancid. It's going to be horrible. You're not going to want to eat it. And I apologize to the vegetarians in the room. I'm not trying to make you upset. This is just to make a point. In order to cure the meat, do you know what I use? Salt. Pink salt specifically. I use a pink salt specifically. It adds flavor, which is wonderful, but that's not its primary purpose. What is the purpose of the salt used for in this instance? You know? To preserve. And do you know how it preserves? This is really good. I'm really impressed. It slows down the decaying process, and here's how it does it. It draws out the moisture from the meat. It pulls out the source of what's going to create this decaying within the meat. As it pulls out the moisture, as it dries out, it doesn't have a chance to decay. It's an interesting thought when you think about we as disciples being called the salt of the earth, isn't it? That we are called to, to go out and to draw out, not to judge, not to condemn, not to do any of that, but to go out and to share the good news so that Jesus' light can shine in the lives of everyone, the broken. So I, I do this, I, I add this salt because it, it creates a nice texture and a taste. I don't really need to do it to cure the meat because, well, we have refrigerators. In biblical times, though, that didn't exist. That wasn't a luxury that they had. This curing wasn't done for texture or for taste, although it did help. It added flavor. It was done so that the meat wouldn't spoil. It was done so that it wouldn't be wasted. See, God created everything for us, and he created these animals for us and, and, and for sustenance. And, and what's interesting here is if we don't care for it properly, we waste it. If we don't go out and we don't cure it, we're going to end up wasting it. And he's saying, don't do that. Don't do that to this creation. I created this world for a purpose. I created you for a purpose. Don't waste it. So this metaphor, it may be, may be a little lost on us because of the refrigerator. But to the disciples, to those listening that day, to those fishermen that just got off the boat dragging their nets full of fish in, this was important. This, this, this struck home for them. What they heard was that the world was decaying, that it was rotting away, and that it was their job to preserve it. Their job. No one else's. Their job. To preserve God's beautiful, once magnificent creation. You are the light, of world, the light of the world, he goes on to say. Again, if the disciples are the light of the world, then this implies what? That the world is dark. That the world is in need of illumination. 
a huge statement that he's making here. Again, he started off by telling us who we created to be, right? Someone who relies on God, receives comfort, is humble, seeks justice, extends mercy, whose heart is pure and humble, who works towards peace. He makes two matter-of-fact statements here about who we are. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And then he goes on to make some pretty significant yet common-sense observations here. Salt that has lost its saltiness is what? It's useless. There's absolutely no point. A light that is hidden is what? It's useless. There's no point. This is not rocket science. You don't need some unbelievably expensive biblical commentary to help you grasp this idea of salt and light in their purpose. In fact, I would argue this is probably one of the easiest illustrations that Jesus presents in all the Gospels. It's probably one of the easiest for us to understand, yet probably one that we struggle with to live out more than any other. He's using this simple, easy-to-understand illustration to make a profound point, that the purpose of salt is to salt something. The purpose of light is to light something. The purpose of the church, here we go. His church, again, not this building, but rather those that gather in this building, does not exist for itself, but it exists for the world. The purpose of the church does not exist for those in this room right now. It exists for everyone not in this room right now. And that's something that we need to understand. We haven't been called as his disciples so that we could keep this light all to ourselves, but rather that we can share it with others. I think I may have shared last week that a couple of weeks ago I went camping with my children and Katie, and we go tent camping, which is awesome. I actually enjoy it. I, I joke about it, but it's a ton of fun. And, and when we're there, though, we, we position ourselves so we're not too far from uh, the restroom facility because, well, there's a lot of us, and we're in a tent. And, yeah, only one of them's in diapers. The middle of the night... The middle of the night, Frankie has a night terror. And if you've ever had a child with a night terror, you know it is probably one of the most awful, awful scenarios you could ever be in as a parent. Um, but here's the deal. It's one thing when you're in a house. It's another thing when you're in a campground with other people in tents at 2 a.m. Like, I almost packed up. I was like, we're going. We're leaving. I'm so sorry. Everyone, you just saw, like, the lanterns turning on in the tents one by one. I'm like, oh, dear God. All right, it was, it was awful. But here's the deal. It, it woke up some of the other kids, and, and once a kid wakes up in the middle of the night, what do they have to do? They have to go to the bathroom. I mean, I do too, all right? So, but, so they had to go to the bathroom. So I send out two of my girls. I'm not going to tell you which two, Emma and Ava. <laughs> all right? Here's the problem. So they, it's the middle of the night. It's pitch black out. They have to walk to the bathroom. I don't want to trip and get hurt, so what do I do? I give them the flashlight. How many flashlights do I have? <laughs> two kids... One flashlight, hoping, hoping that I've done a tremendous job as a parent and that they're going to share. But what happens? One child, I won't say who, this time I really won't. One child uses the flashlight to illuminate their path, but not for the other. And we joke about this sort of scenario, but I want you to really think about this. They're on their way to the bathroom together one of them has what the other person needs, but she doesn't share it. And one daughter trips and falls. More cries in the middle of an already awake campsite. <laughs> All she had to do was take it and turn it a little bit to the middle so they could both see what was in front of them. And she never would have tripped on that route. Let that sink in for a moment. You are the light of the world. Are you sharing your flashlight? Are you using it to illuminate the path for other people so that they don't trip, so that they can make it safely home into the loving arms of Jesus Christ? Think about that for a moment. What good is it if we keep the gospel all to ourselves? We've been called to join with him in the restoration of all things, to preserve the world, to provide light in the midst of darkness, and we do this by loving God and by loving others. And we do these things by reflecting his character and his love, by being witnesses to the gospel, not judge, not jury, not executioner, by being a witness. 
not to those that are just sitting next to you right now, but to the people that you're going to meet when you drive down the driveway, the people in your neighborhoods, the people in your schools, the people on the ball field, your coworkers. See, when you get this idea, when you really understand this, it completely changes the way we think about church. The church, we, we as the church, we exist not for ourselves, but for the world. We have a map on the, in the corridor on the back wall, and across the top of that map, it says the local church is the hope of the world. It was signed by Bill Hybels. He did it some years ago. It doesn't say the local church is the hope of the local church. It says the local church is the hope of the world, but yet we seem to be so inward focused sometimes. And again, when I say church, I don't mean these four walls. I don't mean this beautiful place. What I mean is us. I know I say it a lot, but it's something that's so important for us to understand. I hear so many people say this. They say, you know what? You know what? The church should really do this, or the church should really do that. And you know what I say to them? You're absolutely right. Here's the thing that you're missing. You are the church. So go and do it. Just because I work here doesn't mean that it's just my responsibility. We, collectively, all of us, every single person sitting in this room, all those watching online, we are the church. We are his kingdom. He's called us to do these things. It's not the responsibility of the four or five, six people, whatever it is, that work here Monday through Friday. Sure, we're a part of that. We're a part of that mission. But we, are, as a church, are called to be the salt of the earth and to be called to be the light of the world. We are called as a church to be a city on a hilltop for everyone to see. Matthew 5.16, that, that verse, it says this. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. Jesus states as fact that his disciples were light. But here is he's addressing, what he's addressing is this, that we are responsible for how light is actually shown out, how people see that light. God made us to shine, not so that we bring glory to ourselves, but rather so that we would point glory to his son, Jesus Christ. So that everyone would see Jesus Christ through our good works, so that everyone would see Jesus through our good deeds that the world around us would see the implications of the gospel through how we live our lives and how we treat others. So I'm going to think about this. You may be the only Bible that someone ever reads. Why don't you think about that for a second? Not everyone has one of these. But you know what it says. You may be the only Jesus that someone ever encounters. Am I saying you're God? No, but I'm saying the Spirit of God should be alive and well within you as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Do we want this church, do we want Community Covenant Church to be a place, to be a beacon of light in our community? Oh, absolutely we do. We want nothing more. But more than that, more than that, it's our hope, it's our prayer that you, the church, God's church, become a beacon of light in your homes, in your schools, in your workplaces, in the ball fields, at practice, where the drive through line at Dunkin' Donuts, wherever it may be. Wherever God has called you in that moment, that's where you're to be a beacon of light. And he says, in the same way, let your good deeds shine out, let your good deeds shine out for all to see. You know what's interesting, though? If we were to continue reading on to chapter 6, Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, do you know what it says? Look at it, this is funny. Watch out, don't do your good deeds publicly. to be admired by others, for you will lose the reward from your Father in heaven. When you give to someone in need, don't do as the hypocrites do, blowing trumpets in the synagogues and streets to call attention to their acts of charity. I tell you the truth, they have received all the reward they will ever get. It continues on. But when you give to someone in need, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Give your gifts in private, and your Father who sees everything will reward you. Jesus was a brilliant man. I don't think that he all of a sudden, a couple of moments later, forgot what he said back in chapter 5 when he was delivering the Sermon on the Mount to his friends. One moment he's saying, do your good deeds for all the world to see. And a couple moments later he's saying, don't do them in public. Another paradox, another paradigm for us to figure out. The paradigm that he's creating here in this moment in the Sermon on the Mount and one of the most famous sermons of all time is this. The good work here doesn't change from one scenario to the other, does it? Think of my two little girls walking to the bathroom in the middle of the night. One had a light, one didn't. 
She could have shined the light over simply to help because she wanted her to be safe. But she also could have done it so that she could have come back and said, look what I did. I shared. I was awesome. See, here's the thing. God doesn't care so much about the good deed, the good work, as much as he does about why it is we do it. The motivation is what's important here. He doesn't want our actions. He doesn't want our works. He's God. He's the creator of the universe. He wants our heart. He wants what's in here. He wants the world to see the love, his love, of Jesus Christ through how you love others more than yourself. Love God, love others. His words are cutting through the outermost layer of our being, penetrating the very core of our brokenness in this moment. Because a lot of people, a lot of people, they did this. They did do good works. But it was for recognition. It was because they thought that they could earn favor with God. His words are cutting through deep into our brokenness. So are you created to do good works? Yes, you are. Absolutely. Without a shadow of doubt. But what you do is far, far less important than why you do it. This morning, I started by asking a question. Some of you raised your hand. Some of you decided you didn't want to participate. That's okay. I asked a simple question. I asked this. Have you ever had a desire to make a difference in the world? Most of you raised your hand. Have you ever had a desire to, to do something significant, to leave a lasting impact, to have a legacy? The question I'm going to ask now is a hard one. Why? Have you ever thought about that? Why? Is it to glorify God or is it to bring glory to yourself? This command that Jesus gives us to go out and let your shine comes from our identity. He's saying, because these things are true of you, you are salt, you are light, go out and live this light. This is who you were created to be, and this is the purpose for which you were created, to do these things. It comes from who you are, your identity. So then go and do it. Go and do it. God made you to shine, so shine brightly, but not for your own glory, for his Every year during Summer Challenge, every year during Summer Challenge, we connect with uh, a missional component for the kids and the volunteers to connect with, and it's amazing to see uh, how engaged they become with it. In years past, we've uh, done some work to connect with the Elizabeth Baldwin School out in Pawtucket that we have a close partnership with and raised a bunch of money for some supplies and things that they needed. Last year, uh, we did Change for Change is what we call it. We did Change for Change, and we raised money for a Sunday school program out in Albania that a family's connected with. It was tremendous. And in fact, we had students starting up lemonade stands with signage for what they were doing. Not to bring glory to themselves, but because they really wanted to let their light shine. I was so touched by that. I remember when they came in one morning and said, we made a lemonade stand, we made $22. $22. In years past, we've done these things, but this year we're excited to partner with a local mission. One right, uh, right locally here. It's called Bags of Hope. There are many kids in our community, many even in our church, who are going to go to bed tonight, and mom and dad aren't going to be able to kiss them goodnight. They're not going to be able to experience the love of a good, good father. And that breaks my heart. There are many kids who travel from home to home with everything they own in a bag like this until they become of age and then they're no longer a ward of the state. Everything they own. Can you imagine? This year we're partnering with Bags of Hope the goal of them is they, they want to share hope with children to provide them with a personalized duffel bag. You see it out in the lobby. It's set up there. It has their name written on it, and there's these uh, cosmetic things in there. There's blankets, and there's pillows, and all these sorts of things, journals, 
uh, handwritten notes and Christmas ornaments and prayers that people have sent up for him. You know, just a couple of weeks ago, true story, I was standing out in the lobby and a young lady came up to me and she said, I received one of those duffel bags. You have no idea the impact that it made on my life. So this year, this year, we don't want to just challenge you, uh, excuse me, challenge those that are attending Summer Challenge. We want to challenge all of you as a church as well. Each duffel bag costs only $25. $25 for a kid to be able to put their belongings in that bag rather than traveling from home to home with a trash bag. We've made an audacious goal that every family in our church would be able to somehow afford to purchase four of these bags so that we could make a lasting impact on our community, on his kingdom. We have a lot of families. That's a lot of bags. It's a lot of hope. In just a moment, we're going to watch a, a video that more clearly explains the mission and the vision of this ministry. And I'd ask that during this video, as the lights come down, that you prayerfully consider what you can do to help. Whether that's offering up prayers for the week that we're doing here, whether that's to maybe make a donation or whatever you can do, that's fine. But we ask you to prayerfully consider that. There's offering envelopes in your seat pockets. We just ask that you mark it down, bags of hope. And again, we ask your help, not for our glory, but so that these kids may feel the love and hope of Jesus Christ through this simple gift. Jesus, we love you. We thank you so much for coming down and becoming fully man so that we could enter into a relationship with you. God, as a church, we have a, a deep, desperate desire within us that just we so desperately want to be used by you. And Lord, you present opportunities before us each and every day, and we just ask that you give us the wisdom and the discernment and the strength to, to seek out those opportunities and to respond to them. Lord, we are called to be the salt of the earth. We are called to be the light, the light of the world. Lord, we just pray that you allow our light to shine, not for our glory, but for yours. We pray these things in the precious name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.